2: Just like any podcast, before we begin, let's say some thanks to some friends. How about Gooder Sunglasses, people? The place for style, function, fit, and value for your eyewear, both on and off the bike. Please do not fall victim to that good old-fashioned douchebag sunglass syndrome. Get to Gooder.com today. Grab about 10 pair for the price of the D-Bag brand and look good no matter what you're doing. Gooder Sunglasses. Ambassador Cycling, folks. Now an official sponsor of Aribay Pack Filler Racing for 2022. Get fit to get fit, people. You know being properly set up on the bike is the most critical part of your cycling experience. If you want to add watts, you got to get fit properly to your bike. Think you know everything you know and you're supposed to do in terms of fit? Well, you probably don't. Trust Sam at AmbassadorCycling.com. How about untapped maple, folks? That home for quick digesting, great tasting fueling for your ride. All natural, using the finest maple syrup as the source. Get to untapped.cc. notice that's not a com. Untapped.cc today to enjoy the fueling choice of the one and only Dead King. Dead King. Well, finally, everybody, Scratch Labs. Speaking of fuel, you know you have to drink, right? Well, Scratch Labs has you covered. Make sure you keep going. Best tasting liquid to put in your bottles, I promise. Get to scratchlabs.com today. And that thanks the sponsors for this podcast. Let's get to the theme. Let's get to the theme. know what you're thinking to yourself first of all what's pat eating not really eating anything i'm eating my ice from my iced coffee i'm not even having a beer for this episode and you're probably thinking where's the witty banter between the guys and the the stupid nonsensical stuff they're talking about like i always come up to the shows like they're in mid-conversation well i'm technically i'm kind of flying solo this week as promised last week, this week is a week from hell for yours truly, and so we get our—we try to get our 50 shows in a year, and every so often we have to take a week off. Well, guess what? We're still getting those 50 shows in because we have a show for you this week. It's just that it's not live. It's pre-recorded. Welcome to another episode of the Pack Filler Podcast. I'm Pat Bolger in the studio. Well, it's a mess again, you guys. I'm redoing all the computers and stuff like that, so it's an absolute train wreck, but Mender, the studio dogs in here with me, and um, we're we're getting this done on a what day is it? It's Monday, so we're gonna post this for you guys on Tuesday. This episode is uh, it's, it's kind of a greatest hits. Hit. Not, it's, but it's not a replay. Don't don't shut off your your phone or your iPod. Do people still have iPods or anything like that? Whatever source you're listening to, don't shut it off because this is a new episode. But it's with some old friends who are actually trying to change the way cycling media is presented to us. Sure, you all listen to podcasts, right? Duh, right? You're listening to one right now. In case you didn't know, this this is one. But yeah. And you probably, uh, you know, tried to get your old magazines. If you remember Winning Magazine, Velo News Magazine, all those things, they're all kind of going the way of the dodo these days, unfortunately. So, so how do we get our cycling media? Well, a lot of us go to YouTube. A lot of us do these wonderful podcasts. So these guys, these guys have thought of a great way to create a cycling magazine for your ears. That's right. You're not hearing it incorrectly. A cycling magazine for your ears. Returning to the show on today's episode are John Galloway, formerly of the Velocast, yeah, you know that one. You know that one. If you've been listening to podcasts, you know John Galloway. And also Chris Sidwells, who has who's been on the show, cycling journalist, many, many books. And le- uh, I guess I could say, yeah, relative of the legendary Tom Simpson. So um, two people who definitely know their shit when it comes to bike racing and bike media. And so they're creating this thing called the Cycling Legends. Now, I'm going to say it to you here, and I do say it in the interview. I do have a slight stake in this because for some reason they... I think somebody at, at at Cycling Legends, one of those guys, lost a bet, and yours truly is going to be a part of one of the segments coming up here. Um, starting, I think, this very weekend, just after Het Newsblad, so we're going to be doing that, and I'm going to be a part of those shows. But uh, it's a subscription based podcast, but it is, and, and hopefully, this episode will help you realize that uh, the price of a cup of coffee and an entire cycling magazine for your ears. Is, is a pretty damn good value, and hopefully we can do that and convince you here in this podcast. And we also get to talk about a lot of the nonsensical fun bike stuff. So, hey, without further ado, let's hear from John Galloway and Kristen Wells, creators, founders, innovators, I'm <laughs> kissing ass, of the cycling legends here on the Pack Filler. Okay, everybody, today's guests are uh, taking the way cycling media is presented, taking a definitely new new way. I'm going to try that again. All right, everybody, today's guests are taking on the way cycling media is presented from the one and only Velocast, and if you are a cycling podcast fan, you had better know that one, to the incredible collection of books under the Cycling Legends banner. There isn't a person, concept, or discussion regarding the sport of cycling that these two cannot sit upon. So welcome back to the show, John Galloway and Chris Sidwells. How are you both? Mr. Bolton, hello.
1: Yeah, hello. (laughs)
2: <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I before we even get this entire thing underway, I want to kind of get something straight for the record here. It's almost like I have to uh, indicate, you know, the powers that be. There, I have a personal interest in the topic we're going to be speaking about today. Um, and in terms of your uh, Chris, your 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 creation and invention of this this. Um, cycling magazine for that you for your ears so to speak and um, I just want to ask you both before we completely begin the interview at all um, what was the thinking in having a segment with not but one but two American perspectives and and have you see, sought help for that sort of a thing yet
3: <laughs> well I'll feel that one uh, the, the yes. simple answer is I enjoy talking to you and David and a good podcast should be a conversation You know, listeners really enjoy it when they feel part of a conversation. And in fact, social media has allowed them to be that. You know, we talk to listeners all the time on social media um, and they become part of the conversation. You know, they talk about the same topics that we discuss. And when you and I talked when you were kind enough to have me as a a guest in the pack filler, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And we could have gone on for hours. (laughs) And then David and I. Uh, David Stanley's the other one who's uh, actually he's written about cycling for as long as I know he's a, he's a poet he's, he's a kind of proper renaissance man Yeah. and when David and I were talking it was the same thing I really enjoyed it so when the Velocast stopped um, essentially I'm 60 next birthday I'm just 59 and I've been thinking about retiring for a while although I've surprised myself by thinking actually I don't think I will retire for quite a while now um,
0: you know.
3: my Velocast <laughs> partner Scott is much younger than me so I'd been pestering him for ages to essentially to get a job because the Velocast was just Scott and I. Um, and when I retired, he would be left without any income or to have to rebuild the thing from scratch. So he got a job. Uh, so the Velocast stopped. And I thought, actually, I'm not ready to stop. What do I want to do? And the simple answer is talk to people whose company I enjoy. You know, Chris joined us in the Velocast in the last, what, year and a half, Chris?
1: I think so, um, yeah, yeah.
3: And I thoroughly enjoyed talking to him. And as I said, without, you know, blowing smoke up your rear end, talking to you, Pat, and talking to David (laughs) was thoroughly enjoyable. So when we were putting sections together, Chris and I thought about people we wanted to be involved. And, And you two were on the list. It's as simple as that.
2: And I I do have to confess that one of the things along the way was uh, asking permission to use profanity because I just sometimes that just slips out and I wanted to make sure that if I I dropped an F bomb or something like that halfway through the show that the red alarms wouldn't go off and I'd immediately be cut cut from the family so to speak.
1: <laughs> no, no, we, we we're we're reality. We're into reality. That's how people talk isn't it? and and uh, and also I, I'm much from the. Uh, that cycling writing and talking—it should be entertainment. It should be, it should be good. It should be funny. It should be involved. It should be light. It's this is what people do for hobbies. Yeah. No, it shouldn't be too earnest. Yeah. And I don't want the Cycling Legends podcast to be uh, too earnest. We, we've got—we'll have occasions when we're being sensible, but let's enjoy it.
2: Sure, so you guys when you spoke about uh John, you spoke about the velocast and and then your your origin story there here if we were to speak of that, and how that grew into its into its height of magnificence is yes the that's the word the i was looking for thank you and then and then it, this evolution into what you guys are doing here so for the for the listeners who might not be up to speed take us through the inception of the Pel- uh the velocast and and why you decided to stop it even though your partner decided to get a real job
3: yeah um i'll, I'll keep it brief because people have heard this before um the velocast started when scott or who was my, my partner in the Velocast uh, and I were friends in the the noughties. You know, we, we first met in two thousand and three. In two thousand and nine I had a spare seat for the road trip down to Eurobike, the big trade show in Germany. Uh, And I'd I'd sold Scott bikes and we were both guitarists and musicians. And, you know, I really enjoyed his company. There's a theme developing here. I just talk to people that I like. Um, So we went down to Eurobike, wandered around Eurobike, and I spent the entire time going, that works with that. That, You know, that aluminium's hydroformed like that. These forks have blah, blah, you know, all the usual technical crap. And Scott, when we came back, pestered me to do a podcast. And I thought nobody actually wants to listen to two Scotsmen waffling about cycling. Uh, Oh hello Annie. uh, Hello. (laughs) That's Annie, Chris's dog. She's an integral part of the podcast. Uh, yeah. Um, And Scott finally wore me down and we recorded a show and I listened to the first one a while ago and God it was terrible. (laughs) But the timing was great. There were very few people who were doing podcasting at the time. You were one of them. You know, you were one of the pioneers in cycling podcasting. And it grew and grew to the point where it was just too much work. So we stopped. Um, and then after a year people pestered us and actually in the interim some other podcasts had started because the Velocast had stopped Um, you know we had uh, the bike shop show started because the Velocast stopped Uh, the Velo Club Don Logan of which more soon uh, started because the Velocast had stopped but we came back and said right if we're going to do it it needs to make money we'll do daily shows for the tour we'll charge 20 quid if we make money you know we'll keep going and if we don't stop and it went nuts and for the last 10 years it's been my sole income actually it's been all i did i had to stop my previous job um and when it stopped what i wanted to do was essentially do lots of different podcasts and charge a tiny amount for each of them you and i talked about this yeah. Um, you know, maybe 99 cents or whatever, and people could pick and mix and, and do what they wanted. But the nature of financing the internet precluded that because there's a flat fee, a flat handling fee from even good um, providers like Stripe that means small amounts. You end up walking away with cents. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't work. And meanwhile, Chris had been talking about this idea for a magazine. I mean, he's got ideas that go far beyond the audio. He'd been talking to me about multimedia stuff, website integration, all sorts of stuff. And that just seemed like a natural fit. So when it stopped, Chris and I talked we agreed we were going to do something that was essentially a monthly magazine, you know, columns, segments, all that kind of stuff, but in audio form, uh, and and here we are. So the Velocast has stopped because it didn't feel right to carry on with its Scott. We could have kept the name, but, you know, this, the Velocast was Scott and I. So now it's Chris and I and, you know, a cohort of... Uh, fellow adventurers and it's the (laughs) cycling legends podcast and i'm really enjoying it it's nice after all these years talking to the same person god love him i still talk to scott all the time although mostly about watches now you know he's a really close friend (laughs) Uh, but it's really nice to be talking to new people and doing new stuff and hopefully we can in the way that the fellow cast i'll take pride in the fact that it moved the goalposts we were Probably the first cycling podcast to actually make a decent living out of the thing, and be able to pay uh, contributors properly for their, you know, for their input. And the way that we move the goalposts with that, I think Chris and I and you and David and Gary Fairley, who's joining us, who was a member of the aforementioned velo club, Don Logan, mm-hmm. uh, we can we can change the paradigm a wee bit again without being too pretentious, because as Chris yeah. says, it's got to be fun. Yeah,
2: mm. yeah, Chris. Now you're. History, obviously, is well-known. I've had you on the show before. It's almost like you were thrust into the sport with, with a, a, a bloodline such as yours, with, with Tom Simpson involved and things like that. But talk to me about the transition from uh, the written word to the spoken word and what that that is that process has been like going from there.
1: Um, well, I think a good writer, it should it, you should be able to read out what you're writing, and it, it makes sense in sp- spoken words, you know. You know, you... It's the same. I think if you can speak, you can write and the two should be the same. So I don't think there's a massive gap between the two. Um, you still have to paint a picture in words. Uh, it's not the same as using television or a, or, a, or a visual medium. So you still have to present everything on all your facts and everything and assemble them. Perhaps uh, you've got more time in writing to do it more logically. But then you've also got the, the I like the spontaneity of um of the spoken word, and very often, I mean, you, you, when you write something, the best thing you wrote was what you first put down, because you end up messing about with it, taking commas out and putting semicolons in, and end up back with what you first wrote in the first place. So you can overthink writing, and that's what I'm liking. I don't particularly like to overthink writing. People say that's that's a bit shallow, but um, I like that flow of consciousness, and I like writing in a. <clears throat> A flow of consciousness and making people feel like they're there at that moment in history, and so for me, the two, the way I write and the, and talking, is, is quite similar. I don't quite write as hesitatedly as I just spoke. To anyone, <laughs> but, yeah, so. no, no, yeah, no pressure there, <laughs> right? I usually yeah. have a lot. I've got a lot more ideas in my head than can come out of my mouth. We've
2: seen a insane collapse of of cycling journalism of of the written word in terms of many of the publications that seem to be falling by the wayside Uh, uh velo news i know just recently went to strictly online format we've seen some great physical magazines that have that have unfortunately passed away um was that first of all what what do you attribute to that and second of all was that the inspiration to create something like this, where it is where this podcast medium, where it is where it is something that is much more mobile and and, and accessible format, I guess.
1: Yeah, I uh, I would love a paper magazine, but the day the model that a paper magazine is supported by advertising from uh, bicycle companies and manufacturers is just not on now. Everybody can do their own thing. They've got their own magazine. They've got their own websites. Um, so they don't need and I I just feel that life's got really busy whether it is more busy or not people haven't got the time to sit and and go through a magazine but I think mostly it's it's a financial thing so you would have to make the magazines 20 pounds so they they make a profit on their own right rather than
3: supported by I mean what I would say it's very similar I think a magazine is, is something that demands your physical attention you know, you can't do the washing up while you're reading a magazine. You can't watch the television or whatever while you're reading a magazine. You can't go out on your bike and read a magazine at the same time. You know, that would not be a safe way to ride your bicycle. And I think the attention demanding thing has been taken over by YouTube. Yep. You know, video channels and YouTube have taken over that visual attention yep. segment of the market. The great thing about audio particularly when you, you supplement it with, I mean, we just started today a feature where you can go onto the website to read stuff that's related to the podcast and you'll be able to go in and look at pictures that are related to the podcast. The great thing about audio and what drew me to it first, I mean, you know, my background, both of you was, I was what you'd call a mailman, Pat, a postman yeah. <laughs> because it let me look after our three kids when, you know, when they were still at school age. I'd spend eight hours a day listening to stuff. Yeah. And that's the great thing about audio. You can go about your life, but still get entertainment, still get information without it interfering with what you're doing as well. And I think that's really unique. You know, YouTube is great. I love YouTube. I'm I'm obsessed with YouTube just now. Um, it's a great way to get information. It's a great way to be entertained, but you're sat in front of a box. Yeah. A magazine's the same. You're sat in front of a magazine with audio you can be out on a bike ride, you can be out for a dog walk, you know, all of that kind of stuff and still get the input. So it's very, it's very time efficient. And it's also far more relaxed because it feels like a conversation. Mm -hmm. I think paper, I hate it. I hate to say it because I love physical media. I love magazines. I love books. But the time's passed because of all the cost constraints that Chris just talked about.
1: Yeah. Um, And, you know, I may books illustrated books i also cycling legends has got three tiers it's got the cycling legends podcast it's got cycling legends books um and we're making lovely illustrated books and it's got cycling legends events um, we've only got one event at the moment we're going to try to build that up um and i think this sort of multimedia idea is is the, is the way to go uh, i think that in we're still giving everybody in, uh, the same as you get in a magazine we're giving them features which become Radio documentaries, mm-hmm. essentially. Wow. Our, our features are you know to think and then you talk to somebody about about that to um, to, to cover a subject. We we covered the last one. We covered uh, cycling photography by speaking to two photographers working in different fields, um, and a motorbike driver for Graham Watson because he's just as much part of the uh, of the photographic process. Uh, in capturing those images and i think you can just investigate so much more i'm even thinking the interviews uh, are working better by certainly the will when they're face to face but even even people with zoom and and um and skype and zencaster and things uh, it it's just a it just seems to be a little bit not easier um there's a little bit of the Thing, the other things that you have to think about about advertising, about not offending a, a, a supporter of a magazine. A, you can't do a review. I mean, a review of bikes. is just a bit of a, a laugh in a magazine, isn't it? Because you can't offend the person who's, who's giving you the bike. It's, yeah. uh, it, they tried it. They did some it's really good bike reviews by Alan Piper in the old Cycle Sport magazine. But but they, you know, ex-pro Alan Piper. But they had to be stopped because people were getting upset when Alan said your bike's no good. <laughs> <laughs> which which we could do bike reviews on a podcast because we're not dependent on them as a sponsor yeah yeah
2: wow um so I and you've kind of covered this this fairly well but I this is just a, I guess another opportunity for you to, to show off your tail feathers here a little bit but uh, what separates this from I know there are people out there probably listen to this free podcast thinking to themselves it's a paid Platform, what what am I? What establishes this different from some some of many other cycling podcasts of people who might think they know what they're talking about? Wink, wink. I'm talking about myself.
3: Um, there's two things, and one is um, production standards. I mean, that's the obvious thing. Old pros like yourself, Pat, put out a fantastic product. You know, <laughs> they really do. Um, David Bernstein, who used to do the Fredcast, same thing. He used to put out a fantastic product. A lot of the newer ones. The content is great. You know, the conversation's great. They know what they're talking about. But it sounds like it's recorded in someone's toilet. <laughs> you know, and nobody wants to listen to that. So, I mean, that's that's the obvious thing. But you can get that free as well. I think what you're really selling is engagement. You know, because we're being paid for it, because it's actually our job. I used to say the podcast was actually just you know, the leading edge of the job, most of it is talking to subscribers. And people who follow me on Twitter will get a glimpse of that. You know, I'm very active on Twitter. But if you're a subscriber, you can talk to us. Now moving forward, as the world opens up, Chris and I have plans to go and visit service courses to talk to the mechanics of pro teams on the continent, you know, to go to team launches, But without being sponsored by, you know, the manufacturer or whatever, that means you can go to the team launch with open eyes and be completely open about it. We're talking about going to races and getting slightly left field views, again, because we're not dependent on manufacturer sponsorship. Being paid for by part of your own community gives you a freedom that's lacking in a fully, fully advertised sponsor podcast. It's just, it gives us a freedom to provide the kind of content which you'll enjoy. It lets us be fans as opposed to mouthpieces. And that's not to criticize advertising for podcasts. It's a perfectly valid business model. It's just, we can be more relaxed and dare I say it slightly more critical if we need to be and the engagement is something that time and again subscribers to the Velocast you know the previous podcast used to rave about how engaged they felt with the podcast so I think you get to feel part of a community but as the world opens up you'll also be funding trips which are very very different from what you get in the traditional magazines or podcasts
1: and also I just want to I'm going to blow my own trumpet here that's an expression of being Uh, You know, I'm going to start blowing smoke is that I've got a really good contact. But uh, I've worked in this for a while and I've had a lot of good contacts within the teams and, and within the riders. And I do think I get good interviews. Yeah. And I do think this is going to be strong. I do have an ability and I've always had it to get people to talk to me and talk to me in depth. And the, that is that's why I'm doing the interviews and the and the 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 features because it's all about people talking to me, mm-hmm. and um, it's something I've always been able to do. So I just think they're going to get that extra quality of feature and um, an interview, and people are willing to speak to me. They seem to speak to me with with freedom, and uh, it's always been something I've been able to do in the magazines uh, over the years, uh, and it's something I'm very very much interested in talking to people i love talking to people
3: i can actually give you i'm sorry you can tell we can talk about. i mean that's <laughs> one thing we're not sure of <laughs> i'll give you a perfect example of that chris did an interview with ed clancy um, british olympian you know absolute cornerstone of the british team pursuit squad as well as a good individual rider in his own right and i got two comments from people about that interview one is Nobody had ever heard anybody go into the kind of technical depth about the modern team pursuit that Chris managed to draw from. You know, Ed, it's completely changed in terms of aerodynamic effects, the way that affects the ride plan, all that kind of stuff. So if you're into the tech, that's fascinating, and you won't have seen that anywhere else. But for me, the crucial bit of a podcast, and you'll know about this, when you're editing, the one thing you don't want is dead space. You know, you don't want people wondering if suddenly the podcast has stopped and they've just missed something. There was a point where Chris said to Ed, so are you enjoying your cycling, Ed? And there was the longest pause I've ever hit left in a podcast. And he drew out an answer which was honest and actually ultimately very affirmative. You know, it left you feeling good about it. But unlike in the written word, you could hear Ed having to think about that, having yeah. to formulate his response. You don't get that anywhere else
1: you couldn't get that in the written word and it, it was a wonderful moment. And it's um, the it, it, interviews as well are about sort of leading somebody, becoming uh, empathizing with somebody and getting them to go down a certain path to talk about. And you can realize what they want to talk about. You can realize without making them uncomfortable, what they might be um, are battling with in their own mind at that moment. Uh, I mean, it's no secret, I was an ex policeman I did a lot of interviews. Be, I'm a, a trained interviewer.
3: You can tell. Um,
1: a completely, That's a completely different world. But our job as um, as interviewers was to lead down somebody down a path that was to confession or confronting their own truth. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm never as heavy as that in an interview with a professional <laughs> cyclist, but it's something that I've always seemed to be be able to, to get to. And I've had some remarkable replies from even some of the greats. I mean, Eddie Merckx telling me that, that well, I asked him, what's it like to be Eddie Merckx? And he says, I'm confronted by, a nobody wants to know me. I'm confronted wow. by a man in his 20s that I've got nothing in common with. I wow. go around the world and they want to know about that man. They don't want to know about me. So that's the level of depth I can get to in an interview. And that's what I'm always trying to do. I've probably frightened every cyclist i've ever been interviewed by me now
2: wow um and there there always seems to be that i am sure you get it quite often chris is that adversarial expectation where uh, many yeah. people don't ex- are very re- hesitant to to release any type of openness because it's they're they're afraid they're going to get slapped on the hand and something's going to get published that's going to bury them or c- c- yeah. destroy their career
1: yeah, and I'm never adversarial. I mean, there's no point. It's again, it's entertainment. It's about finding out about this person. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's a good guy, he's a good guy, or a good person, good woman, or whatever, because they're a cyclist anyway. So we're on safe ground.
2: And there are so many stories behind, I, to know yes. Eddie Merckx's story behind Eddie Merckx's career is, I, that's, I, that would be a, yeah. incredible. So, why cycling, guys? There are there are so many topics out there that are so profitable, and and especially for me here in the United States, where cyclists are more of an annoyance than a sport or a hobby or a pastime or something that takes place on a stationary bike that you have a heart attack on. Um, why cycling? What was your re- reasoning behind that one? So many go things on, you guys could talk about. Go first.
3: Well, I'll go first because mine's much simpler. I mean, yours is just genetic. You had no choice in the matter. I <laughs> <Yes>. hadn't. <laughs> um, I'm no longer. I mean, I, I, I'm an old fat tourist now. I, I'm a mountaineer. I mean, that was my, my first passion, uh, climbing on rock and ice. And I, I go into cycling to stay fit for the hill. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, and I tend to get overly passionate about things. You know, the old phrase, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth overdoing, essentially (laughs) describes my involvement with everything I've ever become passionate about. So I got into cycling. Then I got a job working for uh, the Edinburgh Bicycle Co-op, which is a, a significant shop in Scotland. And lots of people were racing there. So I got into racing and became passionate about that. And I'm a time trialist. So being a time trialist, what you're obsessed with is bike tech. So then I got passionate about bike tech um and it was the usual thing you know, be out for a training ride imagining that you're you know long Fignon, the you plan or you know eddie merckx on the marmalade or whatever um and it just became my life um it and mountaineering and actually guitar as well were the three it was the tripod that my life was built around and of all of those I still climb a bit, not as much as I used to. Um, I still cycle a bit, although I'm a fat tourist. But those <laughs> passions have remained. So when Scott persuaded me to talk about cycling, and it became clear that, one, I'm very good at talking, <laughs> She you can tell, at least, in, you know, never mind the quality, feel the quantity kind of stuff. <laughs> um, I remain obsessed with cycling. You know, I can't help but watch the races. I can't help but follow the tech. I can't help but look at the history. There's no choice for me now. It's just who I am. Um, whereas, you know, Chris, it's, it's who he was born to be, I
1: think. I, I'm just fascinated by it and I've been fascinated all my life. I sometimes ask myself why. Uh, I'm a storyteller and it's absolutely full of stories. Racers fascinate me in that uh, it's not played on a pitch. It's not, I mean, track racing's in the track. Yeah, but you, road racing has got so many. It's chaos, really. How do they get order out of chaos and how these things are controlled? And mm. there's so many dynamics going on in a race. Um, there's so many, it, it, and time trials and everything. Cycling is, is, is complicated and it's fascinating. And it's also quite beautiful. Even though it's got this checkered history and it's got the doping problems and, and corruption and paying people off. And even that adds a layer of uh, interest and fascination to it. It's just a it's just a fascinating sport. And you just can. I still don't totally understand it, you know. But because, it, you know, you can't. Nobody will know one person can
3: know, so one thing that both my first passion mountaineering and uh, cycling have in common which I think is is actually really important is that whether you are you know Pojakar or you know Haston or Adam Ondra or any of the the, the really top-end climbers or whether you're a punter you experience the same thing you know if you're doing a, an 18 minute 10 it hurts you the same way as somebody doing a 28 minute 10 if you're at the limit on a 5.15 in American grade, you're experiencing the same sensation as someone who's on the limit uh, on a 5.7. You know, being at your limit is a relative thing. So people can really appreciate what they're watching. You know, when they watch Tajik Pojakar on La Ponche de Belfi and that amazing time trial, they know what it feels like to be completely on top of a gear and a climb even if they're going at half the speed that he is yeah so they're really relatable sports i think that's incredibly important because we can watch these guys and we're slower you know we're fatter we're (laughs) not as tactically as astute but we can appreciate what they're going for because we feel the same pain albeit at half the speed that's a great way to
2: think about it
1: that that is, is perfect yes yes it is
3: Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We've done a fairly soft launch so far. I mean, okay. I've, I've emailed some folk from the Velocast, but Chris has had some outstanding projects, long standing projects that he's had to finish off. So, sure. our plan was to go gung ho with the start of the season. Now yes. you and me and David are recording next yeah. Sunday, Pat. Yes. Um, I'm recording with Gary this Thursday for Gary and I are doing a new show, Gary Fairley, uh, which will be fortnightly. Um, Chris has got features lined up now. I mean, there's there's yep. content coming thick and fast. So it'll be a hard launch now, but already we're doing well. Um, you know, we're, we're doing well enough to be talking about, Chris and I were talking about new equipment for Chris and that kind of thing, because, um, you know... I've got a very posh microphone and Chris has got a nice microphone that we sent him. (laughs) Hey, there we go. (laughs) We we need something much posher. Um, (laughs) I've been really pleased. It's a steady build. And my experience from the Velocast tells me that once the season starts, and particularly once the Tour de France starts, because that's the elephant in the room that everybody gets excited about, um, I I think we're on a winner here. I think we're going to do okay. And the big thing is it's... As opposed to, you know, a print magazine, or even the subscription, the monthly subscription for the Velocast, it's really reasonably priced. This is, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna plug it now. Yeah, yeah, please. It's yeah. three pounds fifty in sterling, which is what five dollars, um, and you get, you're gonna get a lot of content to the point where I would say to people, don't worry if you can't listen to it all. You know, there's this whole thing where people used to moan at me in the Velocast because they couldn't manage to listen to everything. You don't have to. It's like a magazine. You know, read what interests you, listen yeah. to what interests you. Don't worry if you can't get it all. For the price of what? A frothy coffee? Yeah. I think that's it's, say, it's yes. a pretty good proposition.
2: Yeah. yeah. So let the American people, I don't want to say morons because that's insulting my own my own audience but we all know we're kind of moronic over here so how are people going to find it if it isn't immediately listed on my on my cell phone or or anything like that where are they going to get get it and find it and, and get the subscription going
3: well there's, there's two ways uh one of which is um nearly finished a work in development which is to go to uh, chris's site directly okay which is cyclinglegends.co.uk chris
1: that's right yep
3: Um, You can go to um, our podcast host site, which is awesound.com forward slash a forward slash cycling hyphen legends hyphen podcast, which is a really long winded way of doing it. I'll send you. I mean, it's incredible. Just search for awesound and cycling legends and it'll take you there. Okay. Uh, But there's a free feed because, you know, one of the things we did with uh, my previous venture was we put nearly everything behind a paywall. Um, and that was great, you know, because people found us when we were free. And then to make a living from the thing, we transitioned to being behind the paywall. Starting from, from scratch, you can't do that. Yeah. So there's going to be quite a bit of free content. So just search for Cycling Legends and whatever podcatcher you use. Um, if you go to the site, you'll be able to listen to stuff directly on the site. But Cycling Legends podcast in your podcatcher should just uh, find you the free stuff. And then there'll be a link in the show notes, which will take you to the premium subscription.
1: And I think if you just put it in a search engine as well, sure, John does, yeah. doesn't it comes up with a with cycling legends podcast? Sure, yeah,
2: okay, yeah. great. Well, uh, let's 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 have a little bit of nonsensical fun if you guys are okay with that for a few minutes here. <laughs> um, and and th- these are just these. I usually I ask. Well, there are a couple random questions. Now I think about it, but uh, usually these questions are completely random. But I have some more very cycling specific ones, especially for those of us who don't get to experience European cycling firsthand. So um, uh, let's 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 do this. First of all, most memorable races you have seen in person? I'm not counting on TV or, or online. Does anybody have one? Oh,
3: do you want to go first, Chris, or will I?
1: Oh, dear. Yes, you, you, <laughs> right, I'll got, go first I, to I've give got you got some you go first, yes.
3: Um, Paris-Roubaix and Carrefour de l'Arbre is just a astonishing. You know the noise, the, the sweat, the spit, the dust. <laughs> because when I saw it, it was dry, it's it's visceral. I mean, it's it's a visceral experience. If you go to watch one race, I would say go and watch Paris Roubaix, because it's both a wonderful expression of modern cycling, but there are real links to the history of the sport. You know, you could feel you're there a hundred years ago watching them in the pave. It's Oh, it's astonishing. And, you know, you can make the trip where you go and see the velodrome the day before, maybe go and see the famous showers with all the winners' names. It's it's just wonderful. And if you're feeling brave, take your bike and, you know, get your nether regions shattered to bits by riding on the pavé yourself. <laughs> and the other place would be on the mur de Huy in Flesh wallon That is just a a fishbowl of humanity on that climb. And the great thing about that is you get to see the riders on the climb, you know, what, three times? And you're right beside them, and they are going so slowly compared to when you normally see them. So I'd, I'd call it a tie between Mur-de-Huy and Flesh alone and actually any of the any of the famous sectors. If you've got to go to the Arnburg, for example, yeah, see the monument to John Stablinski beside the beer tents at the start of the Ardenberg, and then you watch them hit the cobbles at sixty kilometres an hour from a downhill approach, bottles bouncing everywhere drunk French people falling over as they watch it actually more drunk Belgians than French people <laughs> it's just it's wonderful uh, so Paris-Roubaix or Flesh Wallon for me
2: there we go Chris yeah,
1: I, I'm go- I'm going for uh, and a tour of France stage standing on a mountain but particularly Mont Montoux or Outdoors. d'Huez um, Alpe d'Huez is a natural theatre I mean it was an artist uh, Jean Babragri, I think, who saw, who lived in Bourg who saw the potential of a stage on Alpe and it was him that, that p- pestered local businesses, and they got the Tour of France to go there in the 1950s. Um, it, the, when the race comes to you, there's all the anticipation, everything, and there's the entertainment of the... Cause mm-hmm. The, very, the very Tour of France is just huge, and, and all, all the novelties being thrown and stuff like that, but when the race comes, it's like some life-form massive, gigantic life form coming up the mountain to you. You can hear the helicopters coming, you can hear the crowd, you can hear where the race is. And it just gets uh, more and more and more, not, not violent, but almost, you know, you go to a rock concert, you sat at the front and when the, um, the speakers are going and there's like a shockwave yeah. going past you. It's like that, it, it's just like that. And it becomes, and it can be frightening I go back to, I was stood on Alpduiz on the stage that uh, was a time trial that Lance Armstrong won. And that was an almost frightening experience because the emotions that were on that mountain, for whatever reason. They were worried about death threats to them, weren't they? They, Well, yeah, they were. They were worried about death threats. Everything had come to a, it was like, cycling created it. It was like everything had gone almost too much on that day. So the that that's that is just worth experiencing, particularly on those two mountains because that's so theatrical. Um, the other race I really enjoyed watching was the uh, it was it was terrible because I was wet through all day. Was the World Championships in Harrogate, the the men's pro road race in Harrogate, because that was just a complete uh, fist fight. It was just in terrible conditions, and everybody went. They raced until they reached their limit. Yeah. And I van under pole just completely blew. And they were all racing until the limit. And the big thing that stands out from that is, is Peter Sagan had made a mistake and he did try to get across to that front group on the last lap and couldn't. And everybody was in all states of exhaustion, which left that he, he put his bike up again opposite where I was. He put his bike up against the fence, vaulted over it after 260 kilometers in the freezing, wet, cold, started signing autographs, picked his bike up and then rode off to his hotel. <laughs> yeah. He was not as specky, looked like he'd been to the shops. It just was an amazing experience, that. Huh?
2: Okay, this is a nonsensical question, but and it has to do with cycling, and it's, it's a two-parter. Could, in your, and this one's constantly asked, and I just, I want to get it on record. Could the cyclists of today compete with the cyclists of, past generations and vice versa could the, could could you imagine a a Sean Kelly a uh, Bernardino uh, competing on today's level or has the sport completely changed in in style in terms of um, specialization in terms of pre- preparation and things like that we were I actually talking could,
3: about this in the show we recorded yeah. on Friday
1: yeah oops yeah i think they could if they uh, adopted the way that they would like like let a team take them over yeah if they were prepared i mean they tended to be very individual and very driven but you've got to um you've got to let all this science take you over and, and really believe in it but i think they all they all would do that because of many many riders i speak to good riders from the 70s say if only we'd known about weight power to weight Yeah, You know, if we don't need, they say to themselves, I remember riding in the Tour of France and I was two kilos below what I normally am and I went so much better. So there was a willing, and there's always been, uh, they've always been this drive to experiment um, and and push and marginal gains isn't new. Right from going back from the days of Fausto Coppi walking around the woods on his hunting trips with a weight belt on, with a weight vest, because he thought, well, I may as well have a workout in it. Um, so there's always been that driving force so I think yeah vice versa both ways round um, they, they, they could not everybody we've just done a there's an interview on the website with Rick Van Looy, and Rick Van loy oh I asked about Tom because he raced with asked him about Tom Simpson was he a good rider and did he, yeah yeah he was a great champion then and a great champion he would be a great champion now and he says you can't always say that yeah. And I think he was talking then about discipline, about willing to take on science. Um, and some of the riders from years and years ago were just strong. And that's not enough now. You've got to be fast as well. And you've got yeah. to be clever and you've got to be um, able to keep up with the science and understanding of it. So, yeah, I think by and large, they would be able to cope with each other's world. That's
2: I, I've always considered that, because you, as you say, the technology is so much more, the writers are even more taken care of in, in today's society. And, and I don't want to turn into this old man saying, oh, we had it harder in our day. But, you know, it just seems <laughs> that there are there are some writers you see who almost have that old soul perspective, that concept where they could they could just if they had a time machine, they'd be fine no matter what generation they landed in.
1: I think if the radios weren't there, you know, they, they get criticized about the ra- old pros go, oh, well, they've got somebody shouting at them. They'd be all right without it. Yeah. They'd, they'd be fine. Yeah. So if, if
2: in terms of what races you can't attend, who, in your opinion, is doing it right in terms of race coverage and the ability to actually get a good in-depth perspective? We here in the States are are very much stuck with an online format. We are either on uh, the folks over at GCN or we are scrambling to find some sort of a dark web location where we can watch races. Um, Who does it well over there?
3: You know, I mean, I'm of the opinion that the main thing that's changed is we now get what you would call soup to nuts coverage. Yeah. You know, we get that exciting first hour where, you know, you watch the break form and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of race coverage, I think we're still very much locked into the kind of 80s. Um, you know, the, the, the camera angles and that kind of thing. There's been small innovations, oh. the, the onboard oh. cameras from Velo and all that kind of stuff. But it hasn't really changed. And what I find is that my enjoyment of a race is based primarily on who the commentator is. Not that there are bad commentators. They're just different. And like anything else, like podcasts. The one that's to your taste, you will enjoy more. So I tend to jump channels based on who's commentating. But I think there's a lot of innovation that could be done with race coverage. You know, we had, um, they stopped people using drones to cover a race the other day. I think if you had experienced drone pilots, that would be a fantastic innovation.
2: That was amazing was, shot, yeah. that for you was. Know?
3: yeah. Um, that kind of thing would really make a difference. My personal choice is, I watch Eurosport player. Um, because I like, um, I've used Eurosport since it was a big satellite dish on the roof. You know, now it all comes in via the the tubes and the internet. Sure. Um, and I'm just used to the way they cover a race. And I've watched them since back in the days of, um, you know, before David Harmon, when when the commentators were were just hugely amusing. And they've got some great combs now. You know, when you listen to people like Dan Lloyd, uh, who's on, also in GCN, But yeah. um, it's really good because they're relatively recently retired pros, so they've got a real insight into the current scene. Um, I occasionally watch SBS in Australia. You know, they've just um, bumped Robbie McEwen actually, which was amazing to me, because he was one of the best analysts and had a great sense of humour, but they've got a good team as well. So I tend to choose according to who the commentator is. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'll just watch the raw feed with just the sound and commentate myself in my head. But I think there are real innovations that could be made in coverage. And I also think the soup to nuts thing isn't necessarily great. You know, for some for some stages, for some races, 20 minutes would be enough, Yeah. you know, because there's only 20 minutes of action in five hours of riding. And I, mm. I find myself, because I have to watch it for a living, sitting there for four hours going... Well, this is four hours of my life I'm never getting back. <laughs> so I think tailoring the coverage to the stage and you know, maybe dropping in a highlight if something significant happens in an unexpected bit would be great. But we are spoiled. You know, there's there's yeah. too much cycling to watch now. You know, I'm passionate about the sport. I can't watch everything that's on.
2: Especially you know, today. I I I know today I haven't had a chance to even turn on any of the races, and there are what, four different races going yeah. on right now.
3: You know, you've got Nairo Cantana
1: attacking in one race. You've got Thibaut Pino away.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, what do you watch? It's great. It, it is. It's fantastic. Especially when we were brought up, and I don't know what it was like in, in the US there, but we, Saturday afternoon, there might be five minutes of a classic yeah. when I was at, uh, in the 10, 11, 12, 30.
2: Ours, were, ours, uh, over yeah, here was all, ours over here was all network stuff wedged in between. Oh, pit crew times in NASCAR, and it was yeah. all done to a John Tesh soundtrack with with Phil Liggett as a second commentator. That was oh, it's also awesome.
3: it. I watched yeah. when everything was locked down with COVID. Scott and I did vintage races, yeah, uh, for <laughs> subscribers, where we, you know, we we send a link to a YouTube video and say we're going to talk about this as if it's live, <laughs> um, and people loved it. But for a lot of the races, all you could get was the American coverage. Yeah. <laughs> And it was this man in a suit and a tie, yeah. sounding like he was advertising Walmart, oh, and then suddenly yeah. he'd hand off to Phil Liggett. Yeah.
2: The The rain jackets ones were the, uh, my favorite when they had those big, long trench coat jackets on to make it look like they were about to open it up and expose themselves to a gigantic worldwide audience. <laughs> Check this out! Something like that. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, how about how about in terms of the interviews? Uh, if you guys had to pick the best interview you've ever had the opportunity to conduct?
3: Uh, well, I've, I've got a relatively limited number of interviews, unlike Chris, who I yeah. actually have to have. I've got a, a, a horn which I squeak when he name-drops on the podcast. <laughs> I hit a bell just,
2: sound effect on mine, yeah. Just to
3: get him to stop name-dropping furiously. <laughs> um, we did an interview with Tyler Hamilton. Uh, a live interview which we broadcast to subscribers um, just before The Secret Race came out. And I've got to say, I really like Tyler. He was a fantastic interviewee. Um, He turned up very smartly dressed with his hair done because he thought it was a video interview and was very disappointed when it was just audio. (laughs) He was funny. He was engaging. Um, And at the end of it, I turned to Scott and I said, he wants to say something. And there was that sense of a man coming to terms with his legacy, you know, coming to terms with what he'd done to achieve, you know, the great results that he got. And it hammered home to me something that Chris and I have talked about often: it's because you make a bad choice, because you make a choice that's driven by the culture of the sport that you're involved in. Um, it doesn't make you a bad person. You know, I really want to tell him, even while I, I might despise wow. the choices that he made. Um and it, it really broadened my appreciation of the effect of performance enhancing drugs in our sport. Because it's too easy to be black and white. You know, it's it's too easy to go dopers bad, non-dopers good. Um I I came away with from that particular interview with a real sense that these are rounded human beings who like all of us make bad choices from time to time.
1: Yeah, I mean interviews. I I've done so many. They they, they do all stand out. They've all been memorable. Um, they uh, and you know you know you've done well when well, they take you home to meet your wife as meet their wife as well <laughs> or, or show you Dario Cioni, I spent the day in his vineyards helping him, and and uh, Nico Martin. We went to every cafe for a drink that he could find. Um, it, it I, I they've just all, all been memorable, and you get a lot a lot of. of true moments as well but Eddie Merckx does stand out because it was him and I had a really long period of time with him on a couple of occasions and he uh, was very revealing but i found found them all been quite revealing to me um, and I've just enjoyed doing them, just going to see where they live and going to their house, I've memorable trips, A beaut- one trip stands out was a, uh, going to Milan airport and getting upgraded to a, a Mini Cooper, a red Mini Cooper car with the flappy paddle gears. And I had to drive <laughs> into the uh, Alps um, to see Maurizio Fondriest, because uh, he lives really high up in class. And he took me to his orchards and took me to see his brother and then to his bike shop and see his uh, Legnano bike that he won the Worlds on. So that it's that, like this, they're very good at selling themselves, but they, they, they are easy to talk to cyclists. Apart from this, obviously, the, the doping changes them yeah. and it changes the things I have to lie about but they're quite easy to talk to and enjoy talking and quite captivating and I've never met an unintelligent pro cyclist
3: mm-hmm. the, I'm the, you haven't mentioned Eddie Plankert
1: oh yeah crikey yeah. Eddie Plankert <laughs> I mean, well there has been that many I mean Eddie Plankert we had to this was the time when he lost all his money and was living in a cabin in the Ardennes and we had a weird idea me and Albert Burek who's a family friend who has a, had a bar he's dead now had a bar in um, in Ghent and he said, I think I know where he is so um, he wasn't on any phones or anything so we found him <laughs> and we just turned we found him went down his track and up a track and round the track and we found him and his family in this uh, um, shack and the two people that I've interviewed uh, in Bell, both Belgians who were great success and lost all their money. I mean, Eddie's made it back now, um, but by being a television personality. But they're both, and Freddie Martin's both said the same thing. Money's not important. Having a family and having wow. a wife and and being alive is the important thing, and I've still got that. Uh, and then, and that's they didn't do that with any falseness and they didn't do that with any thought uh, freddie martin said exactly the same thing uh, but the, there's been such a it's it's been interesting just going to see these people and um i can't say that any one stands out it's have all been a joy and a privilege uh, to speak to and i still get that same fascination
2: i've had so many moments doing this show that i've i've been able to speak. I remember one two-week time period in particular, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get my name drops in here, where I was able to speak to Stephen Rose, Sean Kelly, and Phil Anderson all within a two week time period. And I I think I practically after finishing the last interview, first of all speaking to my heroes, and I felt like this you're so cool man. Can I just remember that that was cool and I just felt like just a like a giddy child the entire time and I think after I finished the last interview I was like that's it. I could just go out and step into traffic now. My my everything has been I've I've done it. Checked all the boxes in terms of my professional life and sp- spoken to my heroes and 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 as you say they were far much more approachable than I had imagined. Yes. I'm sitting downstairs yes. with three minutes to go before the interviews. I'm, I'm swaying back and forth going, oh, okay, we're going to yes. be fine. You're going to do this. It's okay. And then they're just, hey, yeah, no, hold on just a second. I got to, you know, I, I'm just fixing myself a sandwich. I got to set it aside or, or something along those lines. And it's... Yeah. yeah.
1: I'm exactly the same, yes. Uh, and the, uh, within five minutes, within just a few minutes, um, you you're not working on that level not that fan right. level to the hero it they, they just get rid of that straight away yeah and i think that's another thing that cyclists have got because again taking eddie Merckx aside they lose more often than they win yeah you you know you're out there doing it you're out there training in the public and and you're out there battling with the same cars we are all battling so they at heart they're just ordinary people that and everybody Body is passionate about cycling. Mm-hmm. Don't become a pro cyclist just because you're good at it. You really have got to have a passion for it.
2: Because yeah, well. you're going to be a
1: long time on that bike. You're gonna have a lot
2: of disappointments. Remco Van popped into my head there, so sorry when you were talking about people who are really good at about it, and I don't know if he's passionate about it, but I'm, I'm, that's my bias. Anyway, I'll just keep that to myself, even though I just said it on the podcast, and I don't edit. All right, um, you guys, we'll we'll finish this off with a few quick nonsensical questions, gentlemen. How do you take your coffee? Black. Black. Flat white. Flat white. What is? What the hell is flat white?
3: Uh, it's, it's it's micro bubbles and crap like that. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's a white coffee that's a bit frothy. Okay,
2: okay. I just I laugh so hard I hit my nose on my microphone. Uh, beverage of choice, if you, outside of coffee oh
3: well this is my birthday week i've had quite yeah. a few beverages of choice that's <laughs> why i
2: chose this question john i've been i've been watching you and this is actually just a glorified intervention we want to talk to you about your drinking
3: uh, well I, I think the fact that two of my best friends own a wine shop is probably an indicator of one of them um I, I like good wine um my favorite drink this week has been a good old-fashioned i think it's really hard to be a good old-fashioned um and i love I love Belgian beer in all of its shapes and forms, uh, but if I had to want drink one thing for the rest of my life, it would be a good Old
2: Fashioned. Okay. With Kentucky, bur- Kentucky bourbon?
3: Well, you know, the funny thing is, yeah, a good a good strong proof bourbon okay. makes the best kind of uh, Old Fashioned. Although we were staying in, for our anniversary, we were staying in quite a nice hotel this week and they did um, an Old Fashioned made with Glenmorangie single malt which Ooh. is it's sacrilege for me you know <laughs> mixing with them all. but it was absolutely delicious really yeah
2: wow okay okay Chris beverage of choice I, I'm a
1: Belgian beer fan you are yeah, good I'm a Belgian beer fan but if it's got to be one thing it's uh, a Cote d'Aron it's sunshine in a glass mm. um and that's that's the only red wine I drink it's the only wine I do drink um in preference, I mean, if somebody else is buying, I'll drink anything. But <laughs> that's what I buy for myself.
2: Sunshine in a glass. I, I, that's that. I think somebody needs to put that on a label if it isn't already. Uh, favorite band or musician? I know John was. His head is going to explode shortly because he has to pick what? one. But uh, but.
3: Jeez. Uh, is this a listen to one thing for the rest of your life thing?
2: Not necessarily. No, it could be who you are currently into right now it could be an a, a artist that changed your life it could be a song that you can't get out of your head even with a ice pick anything like that
3: artists who changed my life a scottish guitarist called bert Jansch. um if you're familiar with led zeppelin on zeppelin one there's a track on side two called black mountainside which is a note-for-note lift of a Yanch arrangement of a tune, a traditional English folk tune called Black Waterside, Jimmy Page, acoustic playing, hugely influenced by Bert Yanch. Wow. And Bert was taught by a good friend of mine, Len Partridge, uh, who was instrumental in the the folk revival in the 60s in Scotland. Bert changed my life. I went from strumming and and being a kind of nice picker to, well, whatever I am as a guitarist now. Um, Jimmy Page was the first person that made me want to pick up a guitar. Um, Jimi Hendrix, I didn't appreciate him when I was young, you know, because there are so many crap out of tune recordings. But once you get Hendrix, you really get it. Uh, But just now, I've got in heavy rotation, um, Queens of the Stone Age.
2: Oh, wow, nice.
3: I'm, I'm really upset because we've got three children. And I was really looking forward to that point where I could go, call that music. That's not even got a tune
0: you know, because <laughs> that's
3: that's what my mum and dad did to me. Yeah. Um, my kids have introduced me to so much good modern music, but they also surprised me by, you know, our middle boy lives in China and he just said, dad, I've been listening to Nick Drake lately. And I, just, I, I just, know, you know, all of that yeah. stuff. Yeah. I can I can't narrow it down pat. You know that. That's a vicious question to ask me. <laughs> well, I was just
2: I was you know, I was wondering if it was going to be some synth pop band or something like that, you know, you, like you're really into Erasure or something like
3: Kraftwerk that. Awesome. Kraftwerk could also Jimmy Somerville fantastic yeah. <laughs> singer. Go on YouTube and watch some of his slow versions of uh, Bronski Beat tunes and that kind of thing. I mean talking about synth pop um an erasure you know anything with vince Clark's going to be a good tune yeah. so yeah it's i'm i i am catholic with a small c when it comes to music <laughs> there's some stuff i don't like obviously because i have taste but uh there's something in music for everybody and without music you know frank zappa got it right music is truth it's as simple as that there is no no better way to tap into the human heart than, than through music for yeah. me yeah. um but yeah uh, Seriously, that's a whole other podcast. But, yeah, yeah, and okay. I suspect in, in the thing that you, me, and David are doing, music might be mentioned on the odd occasion.
2: I'm, I'm not uh, completely opposed to that, that's for sure. Uh, Chris, do you, do you, do you want to follow John on that topic? Or <laughs> I do you don't just... think I can. I, I don't
1: think <laughs> I can. I, I listen to a lot of music without necessarily knowing what I'm listening to. Uh, I'm a big fan, I'm, I'm a turbo trainer now, of dance music, you know? Um, what is it? Underworld and uh, Slippy. That's I can have that on a on a loop. But yeah. uh, if there's, there is somebody I did used to go and I you used to I've seen Led Zeppelin and and various things when I was a long haired teenager. <laughs> but I it, as an older per, an older person, I and knew and my wife used to love this. We've seen Mark Knopfler from oh, Dire Straits yeah. Yeah. in yeah. every form that he does, and and I just love. I think. I don't know anything about guitar playing, and John will probably say I'm wrong, but I think he's a genius. He's a, he's, he's a beautiful guitar player. He seems to be a beautiful person. He, um, His folk music, whatever he's doing, it, it, I've just enjoyed in every way, shape or form that uh, he appears. Uh, we always used to go and try and see him.
3: I tell you what, you think I can get geeky about bikes, you should get me started on guitars and guitar (laughs) players. You know, Mark Knopfler, before he could afford an amplifier, used to make his Strat louder by putting the headstock against the door of his cupboard (laughs) so that the air inside the cupboard vibrated to amplify the sound of the guitar. Wow. You know, I can get oh geez, don't get me started yeah. on this. And I don't, seriously.
2: I, I don't mean to pick out one of his most prominent songs, but Sultan's a, Sultan's a Swing is is a is like a four minute guitar solo. It, it's, yeah, it's genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes, tell uh, yeah, who and,
1: I tell you, would... and live. I mean, it's amazing when oh, it's yeah. live, and yeah. uh, it has a particular uh, resonance with me. Money for nothing, <laughs> money
2: for nothing. I think we could forgive him for. Yeah.
3: yeah, it's yeah. All right really, really? it's a, it's it's an iconic guitar tone that cocked while les paul seemed it's, it's i think good. he
2: was i think he was going for a zz top sound at the time yeah. yeah
3: i tell you who i'm really enjoying just now actually it's a band called pendulum and i've been listening to them and that's kind of hardcore dance music with with a guitar element because one of my friends uh, peridur gwyneth perry um is the guitarist for them and Perry has possibly the most niche job in cycling that I have ever come across, as he's the Tour de France and classics commentator for Welsh language cycling broadcasting. Wow! He he commentates the tour in Welsh.
2: Wow, that's what's the view that <laughs> I'm trying to imagine the viewing audience for that.
3: Well, that. C four in Wales is it's yeah. the kind of Welsh channel, the equivalent of BBC Scotland or yes. whatever, has a pretty yeah. big viewership. Yeah,
2: it does really? um, particularly
3: and, in North
1: Wales, there's a
3: lot of yeah. uh, Welsh speakers. Yeah. And he I mean they pay him well enough that and they pay for him to go to the races and all that kind of stuff. Um and you know, that's that's his side gig. His main one is he's your actual proper rock star and session guitarist. Wow. Worked with Natalie and Bruglia, loads of people he's worked with. Wow. But pendulum are the
2: band. Okay. Okay. Uh, my my last question, and I think we've already found it, but uh, hobbies outside of cycling, when you're not talking about it, when you're not participating in it, what what, what other things are you passionate about?
3: Um, <laughs> so, any, anybody that's followed me on social media will know that I am currently obsessed with collecting wristwatches. Yeah, uh, I...
2: I've seen quite a few. I thought I had quite a few in my drawer, but it appears that I'm not. You've probably got one of those drawers. You open it where they're all lit up and set individually in license. little slots. I have
3: a special books. Yeah. Yes, I have a, yeah. I have a watch yeah. box, Yeah,
1: yeah. And I tell he's you, like, I found... he's like a Bond villain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I find there's a
3: really big crossover between music, cycling, and mechanical watches. <laughs> the number of conversations I've had with you know, people who've been subscribers for a long time and that kind of thing about watches, it's been fascinating. And as I say, when I talk to Scott, which I do regularly still, all we talk about is watches. And I think yeah. it's... This is going to get a bit heavy. I think it's as I'm getting older, it's an awareness of time passing. And I've always been into watches, but I think that added to my obsession about kind of technical stuff. Um, has really fed into the the wristwatch thing, and the good thing is my wife doesn't mind because they're small and easy to store, unlike bicycles.
2: <laughs> oh shit! I have I have seventeen bikes in the house, so I can't say anything. I've got four. Yeah. Oh shit.
1: Uh, yeah, away from cycling, I I love to be outside and uh, the outdoors, up hills, walking, or. um uh, I used to love running, actually. I know I shouldn't do that from a cyclist. I love walking my dog. You can hear, you might be able to hear the dog because it's just having a standoff with the cat at the moment. The I heard the cat, chilling. yeah. Yeah, yeah. There, there's going to be a fight breakout in a minute, so it might have to go. <laughs>
2: I'll, I'll keep it quick. I'll keep it quick. Um, and, and Chris, you mentioned events. I, I do want to touch base on that because. Yeah. Events are obviously a, a large portion of all this, but to couple it in with the with the media source and things like that, what are, what's the the event you guys put together currently?
1: I, I, I'm working. I've got a uh, worked on it for the last. Well, I've had this is this year is going to be the third occasion, and it's a retro ride. we have got There's got a bit of big retro cycling boom in Britain at the moment. You know, bikes that were old oh, oh, steel bikes, steel yeah. enamel, beautiful bikes, um, and there's quite a few. There are about five or six retro rides in this country and i've got the tom simpson retro ride which we've turned into a two-day cycle festival this year and we're having professional cyclists from different areas come and do talks and be interviewed uh barry holman's going to be there and um and uh, various other various other people that we've got to confirm um i also do uh, my own uh talks um that's how i sell my books and um i've got the first one of those for this new season on friday night and we'll be doing live podcasts as well which all come under events um and i would like to see some evenings We, we also do some evenings with one or two bike racers which i want to try and develop and and bring in so that you can you know you can People can ask them any questions that they want to ask as well. And I've always found they quite fascinating and entertaining. And it gets you to meet people face to face. I just love bikes. And I'm surprised, actually. I mean, I go to these places. I've done one or two theatres and it's been full. Wow. And yeah. I think, what? Well, you come see me? is. I hope you're not going to be disappointed. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Twelve <laughs> years I've been making a living podcast and I've never done a live event. We were going oh, to what? do our first live event just before lockdown. And I am frankly
2: terrified.
1: Oh, they're brilliant. I love them, but I'm an old show-off, aren't I? So yeah. get me a crowd in front of me, and I, oh,
2: you know. I'm well, I'm the same way. I my first started out as this. This entire podcast was created as a promotional tool for my an event announcing. I, I'm a play. I'm a sports event PA announcer, and that's yeah. where that all started. And then with this show, I've done some live shows in just pubs where we do an interview and we do trivia night and giveaways and stuff like that. And those are so much fun when you get an audience of people. Who are engaged in there for that specific reason. Now there have been some yep. shows where I'm in a pub and there are people who are regularly drinking there, and they turn around and they go, "What is the guy in the back talking about? Shut the fuck up!" You know, and all these guys just yelling at me, you know, because they just want to sit and drink their their light beer, and uh, so that's always been a challenge. But there, the that's John, you got to do it, man. It's so much fun.
3: I used to really enjoy playing live as a musician. It's just yeah. it's been a long time. It's been a long time. Yeah.
2: Well, um, all right, you guys, I, I've kept you on the line for, for a good amount of time. So uh, once again, uh, the Cycling Legends podcast is now an audio-based magazine. It's got all the features. And, and Chris, you mentioned the retro cycling. That was my first uh, listen into the new format, and I loved that episode, and I loved that conversation. And there's a little something for everything. And as, as John, as you stated, you don't have to listen to the whole thing. You can pick and choose yep. just as you would articles. They're not full-length hour-and-a-half shows, they're they are all digestible pieces, would you be?
3: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, Chris is changing my mind a wee bit on that. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm firmly of the opinion that 30 Minutes is the perfect podcast. Yeah. Um, and that comes from doing daily shows for the, the Tours de France and that kind of thing, uh, where at one point we were up to an hour a show and that you know that's 21 hours over three weeks who's got the time to listen to that (laughs) um you know particularly when there's 700 other daily podcasts now from the tour um but chris is is more of a long form guy and he's been pushing my comfort zone a wee bit so we're out to about 40 minutes now i think for history shows um but we'll always keep it entertaining you know yes you know what an edit's like if something's going on too long just be brutal, just edit the thing. Yeah. Um, so entertainment is our first priority. The length of, will come after that. But somewhere between half an hour and 45 minutes is probably going to be the average show.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we've got an interview, if somebody's really talking and they want to talk and they want to carry on talking, then we're, we're going to. it's going to be longer. And I listen yeah. to interviews like that and you go yeah. back to it as well. Uh, and some of the documentary kind of features we're going to do, uh, I've got some quite advanced ones that I want to so They are going to have to be longer to really do the subject justice. Mm-hmm. And that's, what, to, that's what's so great about the one platform. One ones that I'm working on is... Go ahead, Chris. So One of the ones I'm working on is, are we at the limits of human endurance? So I've got several scientists and different coaches and that, and uh, that is going to be fascinating, and that will necessarily be reasonably long.
2: And that's what I love about the platform is there isn't that restriction. You don't have to fit a very specific time window as you would on a radio or television-based format or print.
1: And, of course, and a magazine article, yeah, it's Mm -hmm. it's got to be – I've got the lead story in a magazine that I'm writing at the moment, but it can only be 3,000 words. And it's called The Science of the Tour of France. Well, (laughs) you can't get – you know, you're just going to have to go down a few channels. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that, that's like the silence—the science of spokes in the Tour de France, and maybe yeah. three thousand words. Exactly, three thousand words. Yeah. Yeah. Round, bladed, non. Yeah. I, I, anyway, yeah. I, I should not write that article. So. <laughs> Well, uh, everybody out there listening to this, you know where to find it. Just get online, try and some of the free samples to start off with. You know, it's just like a heroin deal. You know, the first one's free, and then the next one you got to pay for. Um, and and we go from there. And uh, it's, it, you guys, and I'm not just saying that because I'm going to be involved in a very small portion of this uh, gigantic uh, operation, but uh, it's, it's well worth a listen and it's a lot of fun, especially for us true cycling junkies who can't get enough of all the, the intricate details and things like that along the way. So uh, Chris and John, thank you so much for your time and, and good luck on the format. I know it's going to be a, be a great change in, I guess, in the way cycling media is presented